0: Welcome to the Feeling Bookish Podcast. I'm Robert Fay in Portland, Oregon, and I'm joined as always by Roman Sivkin in New York City. And today we're going to look at a, an older book. We're going to look at um, The Loser by the Austrian novelist Thomas Bernhard, um, who uh, probably died, I think, in the early 90s, uh, was born around uh, 1929 or so. Um, And generally considered one of the most important novelists uh, in the German-speaking world, although quite unpopular uh, in Austria uh, because of the way that he uh, portrays his home country. And so, Roman, the the loser deals with a fictional character named Glenn Gould. And, of course, anybody who knows anything about music, uh, that name jumps out at him. So maybe you can kind of... uh, Say a few things about the actual Glenn Gould, and then this character Glenn Gould in the novel.
1: Right. Well, uh, you know, they're 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 definitely not the same person. It's definitely a fictionalized version, um, you know, Bernhard's foil, so to speak, that he creates in Glenn Gould in this book. Um, of course, the real Glenn Gould, uh, amazing piano, I guess you can call him virtuoso. Okay? <laughs> Following this book that we're reading here. Um, uh, an absolute genius of a performer who performed for the public only for a short time and then kind of cloistered himself and refused to be in public and uh, really relied on recordings. Um, of course, classical record, classic recordings like the Goldberg variations and the well-tempered clavier, um, made him super duper famous. He's, he's kind of like a, you know, a super superstar, uh, in the classical music world. Um, but definitely not the same character as in Bernhard's The Loser. There's slight variations. You know, in The Loser, he's uh, he's a Canadian American. He lives outside of New York. Um, he dies at the age of fifty-one, I believe. As as you know, the real Glenn Gould was a Canadian, of course. Uh, I believe he lived in Toronto most of his life. He died at the age of fifty. Um, not at the piano playing the Goldberg Variations like in the book, like it says in the book, but uh, just I believe in bed, uh, maybe while asleep even.
0: Um, and and it's and it's absolutely and I, and I think the interesting part about choosing Glenn Gould because part one of the themes here is is. Um, focuses on what does it mean to be an artist and and not a dilettante but an actual artist and also what does it mean to be a genius artist and that's part of what uh drives one of the characters crazy but I I think it's interesting that they they chose Glenn Gould or he chose Glenn Gould because the one thing about him is that I think even if you're not somebody who listens to a lot of classical music the thing about the Goldberg Variations, when it came out in 1955, and I think it still applies today, is it's so exuberant and spectacular. And for people who don't know, it, it was a Bach piece, and it was, if I'm not mistaken, more of like um, kind of exercises that he wrote. Um, right, I and, believe it was um, to,
1: soothe, to soothe, it was commissioned by, yes. uh, by this guy who wanted to some music to kind of soothe his insomnia.
0: Exactly. That's right. I'm actually thinking, I think it was the well-tempered clavier, which were originally were created as exercises to right. to loosen up right. uh, one's fingers, whatever. But Bach at that time had been a dusty, Lutheran church-going kind of music. And I think the thing that Gould did was just reinterpret it. And it was modern and exciting. And even today, you listen, there's a, an exuberance. Uh, it's lovely. You don't have to be a musician or... Um, you know, some kind of listener to get it. And so I think it's that kind of genius um, that really just jumps out at you with Glenn Gould. Right. Um, and so I think it's, it's uh, you know, clever of Bernhard to sort of pick Glenn Gould because the genius is so obvious. So, in ab- so evident,
1: absolutely. And, you know, Bernhard yeah. himself studied music. I mean, this is something that's very close to his, um, to his heart because he... He before he got really sick with this lung disease, which, by the way, all three characters here share. A few of the major characters share this lung disease. Um, in fact, four of the characters have lung disease in this book. Uh, but he trained, I believe, as a singer in Vienna, uh, and he was set to become a professional musician uh, when he was. And, and
0: and by singing, do we mean like like German leader? Yeah, yeah. This yeah, kind yeah, of classical, classical yeah. yeah,
1: classical stuff. Um, you know, and he, he basically could not pursue this career because of his lungs, because he was sick. Um, so this is very, very close to him, this whole theme of music and musical genius, and what does it mean to be a genius in general, not just in music, but just in general. Um, and you know, this book has three main characters, right? We have, of course, Glenn Gould as sort of the pillar, and on both sides of this pillar, we have the supporting the supporting role, so to speak, of the narrator, who's never named, just the narrator, and uh, the loser, the titular loser, W, as I call him, or Wertheimer. I pardon my German expression here, um, uh, pronunciation, I should say. Uh, but Wertheimer and the narrator are these, these revolving moons around the sun of Glenn Gould. Um, and uh, it's it's really in a way it's almost one character broken up into three different facets. Uh, I don't want to like psychoanalyze the book; that would be horrible. But but it it does feel like it's um, a study in genius. and genius, basically, this is a, a genius yes. study. You know, it's yes. not really, it's not even a novel. I mean, it's technically it's a novella. It's not
0: that long, yeah. you know, but it's very dense and concentrated. Yes. And, and the character Wertheimer, um, as the narrator tells us, consciously wanted to be a virtuoso. He wanted to be a Glenn Gould. And so, of course, the, uh, when he meets Glenn Gould at the Mozartium in Salzburg, this you know, fictional kind of meeting here, um, he's immediately broken. He realizes that within, all within his hearing, effort, the, all his within, work.
1: Within, he's actually outside of room thirty-three on the second <laughs> floor of the Mozartium, and he hears at four p.m. As the narrator notes, I mean that's that's wonderful. This exact detail: at four p.m. at room thirty-three on the second floor, Wertheimer just happens to be walking there, and he hears somebody playing the aria part of the, of the Goldberg variations and it's Glenn Gould playing it. And within a few bars of hearing Glenn Gould, uh, he maybe not even conscious, in fact, unconsciously, because the narrator keeps saying this, he didn't really realize it, but that was the fatal moment for Wertheimer. That was it at 4 PM on the second floor room 33 was the fatal moment. It was this death sentence pretty much when you he heard Glenn Gould, uh, play. In fact, it, it, in early in the book, he says that, uh, um, well, let's just back up a little bit because they're meeting in in Salzburg, which, by the way, is also the birthplace of uh, not the birthplace, but it's the hometown of um, of Bernhard. Um, he was born in Holland, um, but they they go there, all three of them, go there with the purpose of studying with Horowitz, Vladimir Horowitz, of course, world famous pianist, real pianist. Um, who in real life I believe never even taught and I don't think it was ever at the Mozartam. This again a fictional element here. But they are all three of them are attracted by this this uh world famous uh uh piano virtuoso Horowitz and go to study with him, right? So they go to study with him and they meet as as and become friends, lifelong friends at this point. So the three of them, you know, are lifelong friends. But it's again as soon as and Wertheimer was um according to the narrator, the best player, the best piano player in in the school at that point, except for Glenn Gould. When Glenn Gould shows up, which, by the way, he never did show up to Salzburg. He uh, he played there, I think, a couple of times, but he never went to the Mozart team. He never studied with Horowitz. Horowitz was never a teacher to begin with. But anyway, um, so when when they get there... They they take this course with Horowitz, and when, when Wertheimer hears Glenn Gould for the first time, Horowitz invites him into the studio, invites him into the room as Glenn Gould is playing the Goldberg Variation. And and Wertheimer is so amazed by Glenn Gould's playing, he can't even sit down when Horowitz offers him a seat and only sits down after Glenn Gould finishes playing. And he's just already – you can tell that something is really broken in him by Glenn Gould's playing. But it's genius. something's already broken in him
0: yes yes, and and um, the i I will won't repeat myself and keep saying the Glenn Gould character i 'll just say Glenn Gould Glenn Gould recognizes uh, right away that this uh, the yearning and the 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 wannabe quality of Wertheimer, and so immediately starts calling him the loser right. so that 's where we get the title and and of course this um, almost becomes part of the eventual death sentence of Wertheimer to, to actually, he probably knew he was a loser in a sense, that he was, although technically talented, on some level a wannabe. Not a wannabe in the sense that he wasn't competent or even, as you say, a very good piano player. But if your goal is to be the darling of a generation, you ain't gonna be it when you run Glenn Gould. And and this exploration of what it actually means to be an artist at that level is fascinating because it's more than just your ability at the instrument in this case, but almost like your psychology. And there, there's a, um, a, a paragraph here that I think is really brilliant. And so the narrator is, again, analyzing the difference between the two. And he says, whereas Wertheimer continually asks questions, Glenn didn't ask any questions at all. I never heard him ask a question, I thought. Wertheimer was always afraid of overtaxing his strength. It didn't even occur to Glenn that he could overtax his strength. Wertheimer was constantly apologizing for something that didn't even need an apology, whereas Glenn wasn't even familiar with the concept uh, of apology. Glenn never apologized, although by conventional standards, he, to he constantly yes. needed to apologize. <laughs> Uh, Wertheimer always had to know what people thought of him. Glenn couldn't have cared less, and so it's it's brilliant and great, and it it makes you wonder that um, almost this idea of nice guys finish last is there something that well, you almost have to have this internal compass yeah, as, well, a, as a great was artist. is
1: not a nice guy by any means. By any means, what I I think I think the difference here is that. Is that well first of all, when they first meet, you know, the, the narrator befriends Glenn Gould before Vertheimer comes into the picture. And there's an interesting dynamic here where the narrator feels like Glenn Gould is sort of his his friend and Vertheimer is a latecomer to the friendship. And in fact there's a he he almost like tries to push Wertheimer away from Glenn Gould. It's like, you know, he's my friend first. Um you know, Vertheimer was not was kind of always like the third wheel, so to speak. Um, but I just want to back up a little bit, Rob, and, and just and just point out that if anybody hasn't read Bernhardt, uh, the style here is really crucial to the telling of the story. Yes. First of all, what, what's happening in real, sort of, quote-unquote, real time is the narrator is going into an inn, an Austrian inn, and, and, and he's thinking. He's thinking about what happened 28 years ago, which is when Glenn Gould uh, – he met Glenn Gould, which I believe is 1953 in the, in the years in the, in the novel. So he's kind of retelling, meeting Glenn Gould and spending two and a half months with them at the Mozarteum, studying with Horowitz. Right? So um, at some point during those two and a half months, Wertheimer uh, – he befriends Wertheimer as well, just kind of meeting him in the hallway – and speaking to him and then suddenly boom they become lifelong friends step a deal he actually talks about that quite a lot as well about how that happens how do you just talk to somebody and they become lof- lifelong friends uh but he he you know he he's got this weird style with these very long sentences and then uh, all this i thought you know he said i thought and this was like 28 years ago as you're so he's recalling things that happened 28 years ago and as you them um Throughout the whole novel, but and uh, once in a while, there's a little line saying, "As I entered the inn, I thought as I entered the inn, or I thought as I stood in the inn," uh, you know. Yes. And this happens. This this goes from page three, the first page, to what page one hundred fourteen? For more than a hundred pages, is basically just walking into the inn and thinking.
0: You're 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 dead on, and and that's the thing that is really interesting, right? There's there's actually no paragraphs in the entire novella. It just is one clunk of text you're you're in the mind of a person who's a bit obsessive yes and, and and you're absolutely right so you the only grounding you have for many pages is as i entered the inn as i entered the inn or as i was in the inn right so he's slowly moving in as you said and i kind of made a note that it wasn't until page 24 that you got any physical description of the environment where he he mentions the Inns Fetid Aroma. Uh-huh. And then again, goes on for another, whatever, 30 pages without any physical description. Um, but but somehow in his thoughts and in his obsessiveness, in his his attacks on all things Austrian and Austrian culture, you, you really get a sense of the environment. I, I feel like I can picture the city. I feel like I can picture the country because um, he's constantly... Um, in an exaggerated way, which I think helps us to understand, he's as an author, he's being humorous here, but he really lays in in an, in an over the top way on all things Austrian. Yeah. I mean, yeah. he he was famously uh, and, and,
1: called uh, again. I'm sorry about my pronunciation, but Nestbeschmücher, I believe it's called, somebody who fouls his own nest. Uh, that's what the Austrian critics and uh, public kind of refer to him as, uh, because he was so critical and so savage about you know ravaging Austria and all of its you know cultural and social institutions uh, you know I, I believe the word Cretan creeps up quite a lot they are all Cretins and cretinism um,
0: and, and totally and, and and here's just to give you a little sense of, of how he talks about Austria he says it um, <clears throat> again the narrator those who live in the country get idiotic in time without noticing it. For a while, they think it's original and good for their health, but life in the country is not original at all. For anyone who has been born in and for the country, it shows a lack of taste and is only harmful to their health. The people who go walking in the country walk right into their own funeral in the country, and at the very least, they lead a grotesque existence, which leads them first into <laughs> idiocy and then an absurd death. And and then... Um, Just another, uh, and this I think is just hilarious, and this is where he's addressing Austria in particular. And and again, I think this is hilarious, and if you don't, if you miss that, you need to kind of rethink Bernhard. So he says, Austrian kitchen windows are so, are altogether filthy, and we can't look through them. And naturally, it's to our greatest advantage, I thought, not to be able to look through them, because then we find ourselves staring into the mouth of cat." catastrophe into the chaos of Austrian kitchen filth and 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 so at first you know my sense is like wow this is a very deadly serious narrator and author who has no sense of humor but but actually it 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 is quite fun and and I know you love this kind of thing Roman so I I assume you were laughing uh much of the time I I
1: was you know but when I first started reading Bernhardt which was um Sometime I believe, in the late nineties or early two thousands I first discovered him i um I made the mistake of uh, reading like three or four of his novels in a row now there 's definitely you know absurd and savage humor in there, but i i maybe i wasn 't quite catching on to that yet at that point, and so I only saw the depressive the intensely depressive the extremely intensely i know it 's <laughs> stupid to say that, but it 's really really deeply intense. And it's depressive and negative and nihilistic. Of course, he also has elements that are opposed to that in his work, which I didn't recognize at first. So, and I still, when, when people, you know, when I talk to people about Bernhardt, and if they haven't read him and, and they're so inclined, I always recommend not to read uh, more than one or two books in a row. You know, uh, just, just it's just not a good idea because I think an alternative title to the loser. It uh, could be the suicide variations, right? Because there's a lot of talk about suicide. There's a lot of talk about is life really what's going on with life? Is it really worth living this way, or what is it? And is is suicide a, a viable option? And I think uh, you know, I half jokingly say this, but only half jokingly say this. If you read too many uh, Bernhard novels in a row, suicide becomes a viable option. You, he convinces you, you know. <laughs> so, so don't do it. Don't they take breaks. Ye-
0: yes, um, and, and I'm going to get this wrong, but it reminds me of um, wasn't there some famous proposition by Albert Camus and uh, something about um, something about suicide being um, really the only kind of logical uh, right. course of action yeah, that the one can take. Yeah,
1: Existentialists were, were in favor of that for sure.
0: Uh, yeah, that that matter. it was a very legitimate. Human uh, option, right. Um, right? Yeah, you know, you're you're right, Roman, and, and the whole suicide thing. And I think again, we, we don't want to get too far down the line of the author's biography and analyzing the work of fiction. But I, I he did commit suicide, if I'm not mistaken, at Bernhard? 58 no. or so. No, 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 no. no, no, no okay, no,
1: no, 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 he did not. He he was as uh, he was, you know, always wrestling with the concept of suicide, but he also loved life. Uh, strangely strange to say it about Bernhard, if you read really just you know just just familiar with his works and not his biography really um, but he did he did enjoy living in his own particular way and he did not want to let that go uh, he wanted to keep on going um, so he did not commit suicide he did die alone unfortunately well you know he 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 was alone most of his life but um, he, he was, in a sense, a Glenn Gould type of character. Yeah, he was a genius. Uh, I, in my mind, there's no, no doubt about that. Um, and he isolated himself, much like Glenn Gould did. Um, he had this uh, big house. And by the way, he also had a very, you know, he put himself, of course, a lot, a lot into this novel. So, I, like I said, I think, I think the Glenn Gould, Wertheimer, and the narrator are three aspects of Bernhardt's personality. Um so he he really he really tried to examine himself, I think, and his relationship to art through this book. And uh, this is just one of the books that uh, are really a trilogy of books about art and artists. You know, the first one is the Loser, then we have the woodcutters about Viennese High Society and their pretentious you know, views on art. And the third one, I believe, is called um, uh, The Old Masters." Um, so, but the loser I think is, is probably the, well, no, I, I like all of them. I like all of them. It's hard to really choose a favorite with Bernhardt. Um, but like I said, he, I really think he was very much like a Glenn Gould type of character. Uh, absolutely brilliant, uh, you know, cantankerous and, and difficult to deal with. Um, and, uh, you know.
0: Yeah, I, I.
1: I was going to say with Wertheimer, Vertheimer, you know, going back to the suicide theme, you know, he's, he's – he, uh, as the narrator says, he emulated everybody around him. Uh, he really wanted to be Glenn Gould. He really wanted to be nar- the narrator or he stole a lot of the things from, the, from nar- the narrator. He kind of appropriated them. So he was basically an inauthentic person. He always wanted to be something that he wasn't. But the only authentic act that he committed was his suicide. That was the only authentic yes. act you
0: know yes and, and I I suppose Albert Camus would would, would approve has cheered cheered he from is, the grave yes, yes um yeah and, and so so that's a good distinction to make about the author's personal life I, I I didn't quite know that but certainly in the novel deterioration um of of Austria of right he's always talking about um the narrator has been in Madrid for 20 years or so when he comes back for Vertheimer's free, funeral and he he's he's uh again, seeing that you know the country has fallen into to ruin and catastrophe and, and deterioration. And, and there's the deterioration of Wertheimer when he is confronted with Gould. But there's also this idea that um, Gould was so committed to his art, there's a lot of references to we all expected that he would explode in, in, at some point. And of course, a stroke is a kind of you know, neural explosion of some kind or a Right. And, physiological and that was, explosion that was
1: yeah that was all yeah, they all expected him to have a stroke or something to die basically uh, from his art
0: <laughs> yes and, I, and I'm going to make um, a, a really far-flung connection here because that's what I like to do. Um I've been poking around with a book that I think everybody should check out if they have a chance. It's a it's DH Lawrence wrote this amazing um study in American literature. It's called Studies in Classic American Literature and it absolutely kills to this day. He looked at, you know, Hawthorne and Poe and Melville. So he also looked at a lesser a, probably a more forgotten writer named James Fenimore Cooper. Mm. I don't know if you oh, yes. you remember him oh, from Oh of
1: course, of course. You know, he's r- very important uh, to the Germans because uh Another brilliant German author, Arnold Schmidt, uh, absolutely loves uh, James Fenimore Cooper, and he put him a lot of his books. So, yeah, no, no, I am, yeah, definitely.
0: And and I I'm 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 gonna uh, make a reference to the high school that both Roman and I went to. I don't know if you remember <laughs> in at Peabody High School, Roman, um, our our uh, English teacher. I don't know if you recall her name, but she she really uh, pushed uh, Natty Bumpo. Uh-huh. The, uh, the tales of, of James Fenimore Cooper. But um, D.H. Lawrence uh, makes this, he makes this observation about American literature and he says there are kind of two features. And he says, number one, is a disintegrating and sloughing off of the old consciousness, presumably meaning like the European consciousness. Mm-hmm. And then also the forming of a new consciousness underneath. And then he says of Fenimore Cooper, Fenimore Cooper has these two vibrations going on together. And then he says, by contrast, Edgar Allan Poe has only one, and that's only the disintegrative vibration. Mm. And so that, I, I kind of came across that, and I said, yeah, that, I think Bernhard is, is um, this is sort of what he's looking at. And I also started, you know, the, the, Glenn Gould calls Wertheimer the loser, and he calls the narrator the philosopher. And so the philosopher, uh, the narrator, uh, you know, says that he's happy to give up the piano. That that you know, he knew he wasn't meant to be a virtuoso, but he he becomes somewhat of a dilettante in terms of um, you know, oh, I'm studying the great philosophers, Schopenhauer and Kant, and so forth. And then at one point, he tries to write an essay about Glenn Gould, and he's not able to do that. So there's a certain failure among you know the narrator, the philosopher. And, and you rightly point out, there's probably some, maybe these are all facets of one character. But I'm wondering if, if you also got the feeling of, um, this is, again, written in 1983. Um, there seems to also be a kind of like, he's looking around Austria, you know, at the center of Europe. Of course, it was, you know, the center of the austro hungarian Empire. I mean, Vienna, if you go, is a, is a mind-boggling and beautiful city. But he really seems to see just deterioration. And almost like... He talks about you know the architecture and 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 the people and the buildings and the atmosphere. It's all just a sham, and I and I wonder if it's a stretch to to see this as you know a critique of the Western civilization project. Oh no, no, it's um, not a has kind of has kind of has kind of come to an end. And it's interesting because um, you know there's more and more evidence of that in Europe today that. Um, you know, th- things have really, they're kind of worn out, <laughs> the o- the old ways.
1: Right, right. No, I, absolutely, I don't, I don't think it's a mistake to think of that at all. I mean, it's a critique of not just Austria, really, but, uh, yeah, really the entire sort of Western way of thinking. But uh, here, first of all, let me just go back to D.H. Lawrence quickly, because there's an interesting connection there as well with Bernhardt. Um, you know the writer Jeff Dyer or Joff Dyer. I'm not sure how to pronounce his first yes. name. Yes. Well, you know he wrote this wonderful book. I don't like him that much, but I like this book uh, a lot. It's called Out of Sheer Rage. I don't know if you've read it. Out of Sheer Rage is a study of D.H. Lawrence. Supposedly, uh, he wants it to be the book to be that study, but it never really turns into a study of D.H. Lawrence, and it's heavily, heavily influenced by Thomas Bernhard's style. It's really written like, like, it's like Bernhard Light or something like that, you know. Uh, so again, just like with Wertheimer, I mean, the, excuse me, the narrator, uh, attempting to write something about Glenn Gould, some Glenn Gould essay, as he calls it almost, you know, sarcastically. Um, uh, he never really manages it or he does and then destroys it because he's not happy with it. And, uh, you know, I think this book, The Loser, is really supposedly what he ends up writing. Uh, even though he says he will destroy it. But here we have it. So luckily yep. he didn't destroy it uh, because the narrator is not really Bernhardt, of course. But um, the, it's an interesting connection with D.H. Lawrence there um, that you mentioned, you know, that uh, I really highly recommend that book, by the way, by, uh, the dire book out of sheer rage. Mm. Really, really good book. Um, and another kind of personal, personal connection for me and Bernhardt, at least I I'd like to think of it that way. See, when I, um, I, when I emigrated from, from Russia, I was a little boy, seven years old or so. Uh, It was 1978. And so we we finally got our visa. We got on a plane. And our plane, you know, we weren't sure where we were going to go yet. Either Israel or America, we weren't sure about the visa situation. I was too little to know all about that. So I just kind of hung around, you know, for the ride. And we arrived in Vienna, Austria in 1978. Uh, And as refugees, I guess, we're considered refugees or something like that, we were allowed to stay at the Red Cross compound, but we're not allowed to leave it. Now, there's a big Red Cross compound in the middle of Vienna with these high walls, or they looked very high to me as a seven-year-old boy. And I have this recurring dream (laughs) to this day that – that sort of brings him back to those days where you know, we were staying at this compound with bunk beds. I think we were there for like five, six days waiting to decide whether we're going to go to Israel or America. And I have this recurring dream of me being in Vienna inside this compound. And outside the compound, right outside the walls, I'm picturing Bernhardt walking, you know, having these like artistic long walks in, through Vienna, just like Wertheimer has these long walks. He's always this peripatetic character, just walking, can't stop moving, um, and I'm just picturing Bernhard, who was still alive at the time, and probably already thinking about writing *The Loser* right at that moment, 1978 or, or close to it. And that I'm right there, close to Bernhard somehow. You know, behind this huge wall, both physical and, and, and mental in, in the way, obviously. Um, so I don't know. I just find it really interesting that I have this weird, um, weird dream about Bernhardt and me being physically close. They'll obviously separate it, you
0: know? No, that's a that's a lovely memory. And, and I think you've alluded to this before. And, and um, this idea of very personal experiences that somehow then become associated with the books you're reading or will read. Yeah. Th- th- this is a topic that I think will, I know you've said maybe we should talk about this, is not just, you know, remembering the environment you were in when you read a special book, but also how you make connections like that one. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, i tell you, I, and mean, so when it, I
1: the reason why I fell in love with Bernhardt is first of all, of course, because of, of what he says in the books, but also I mean, particularly how he says. I mean, you can't really separate the style from the content here. I mean, Bernhardt was not big on characterizations or plot. He hated those things. He really wanted to get to the root of the matter right away. He didn't want to deal with all the bells and whistles of literature. Um, so he's got this obsessive thought patterns that always refutes itself. It says something and then refutes itself. Says something again, refutes itself again. This constant back and forth. So the experience, the actual uh, you know, mental and physical experience of reading this kind of prose is really uh, vertiginous. You really get a little dizzy. It's like you're going down this spiral slide that just keeps going and never stops. You just pick up speed until your nerves are raw and you just can't stand it anymore but you also don't want to stop because... You realize that what you're reading, what you're imbibing, what you're absorbing through this process of you know running your eyes across the page is really essential, really important. You don't know why exactly. That's for analysis. That's already right away it breaks down and stops being that important. But you know it's important. You know, you know it's really I, vital. Um,
0: I, I think I think it's a great description, and and certainly, I mean, we've all had obsessive compulsive thoughts at one time or another often when we're stressed and you get into this contradictory cycle of um you your mind starts churning in this circular way and in almost a contradictory way and I mean I I guess I have to say um I've I've read enough that I'm able to separate um how I personally feel about a book uh with my my analysis or admiration of what the author's doing and I I personally, I don't think I can read a lot of Bernhardt because I get almost a bit worn out. And, and maybe my, my own mind works a little bit too much like Bernhardt's. There's maybe a little bit too much of uh, recognition there. And, and so... I think that's
1: true for all of us, it, for anybody who's creative I, I, and has a spark of, 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 you know, of imagination. I think it's true for all of us like that
0: yeah that's why that's why i can't
1: i can't i mean i I just don't recommend reading a bunch of in a row i just don't because you're gonna get you're gonna get you're gonna get like vertheimer you're gonna get broken you know it's really especially if you have a (laughs) a very sensitive uh fragile mind it's just something that i would really um really tell people to avoid Uh, but at the same time highly recommend reading Bernhardt. i'm just you know just saying don't read too much in a row because it's he'll take over he's power, he's more power, he's the he's our Glenn Gould we are Wertheimer and the narrator basically the readers you know we're we're not in his league uh we're just kind of grabbing at the coattails and hanging on for dear life you know
0: well said i I, I want to throw another uh, sort of thought out there and that is um, this is a kind of strange book as you point out, and a lot of the strangeness comes from the this, these stylistic ticks that we're talking Which about. I this, love. This. I
1: absolutely love them. I love it. I a- love it. I love it.
0: Absolutely. And and, and uh, I know he's unfashionable with a lot of people, but I, I still is? really like the critic. No, no, I'm sorry. The critic, um, I'm going to quote something from um, Harold Bloom, who's a, a, a professor and critic at Yale, who's, I think, Big cheese. kind of... Big cheese. Yep. Yeah, kind of uh, considered maybe a bit of a curmudgeon. Big stinking cheese. But he wrote a Exactly. He wrote a book called The Western Canon, and he argues you know, that the canon is essential and there are certain great books. And of course, this is, seems to be uh, under debate at universities, and I'm, I'm glad I'm not at a university, yeah. honestly. Yes. Um, but, but he makes this, he's, he tries to justify uh, in the introduction why he chose you know, the books he chose. And he says one mark of originality that can win canonical status for a literary work is a strangeness. That we either never altogether assimilate or that becomes such a given that we are blinded to its idiosyncrasies. He mentions, you know, Dante is the largest instance of the first possibility and Shakespeare, the overwhelming example of the second. And I love that because if you really just come to a book open minded, like Moby Dick, if you open Moby Dick this weekend and start reading it, it is a totally bizarre book. Mm. It is completely bizarre. It's wonderful, but you know you're 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 following this narrative, and then suddenly there are like chapters about maritime uh, technology at the time. You know, deep deep technical lists of the rigging and the ropes um, on these ships in these sails. Um, It's it's a it's 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 a strange book. There's all sorts of weird things and. I think as time goes on, people will continue to read Bernhardt, but it's a strange book, and and uh, I, I mean that in the in as the highest compliment.
1: Well, I, I tell you, I mean as that adage goes, you know, uh, all great books teach you how to read them. So with Moby Dick, yeah. like you mentioned, it's it's almost like the art of slow reading. You have to, you can't just like, where is the plot? Where is the, What's what's happening next? No, you slow down. You really imbibe the whole. Whaling industry—the whole atmosphere of how it was—you um, know, like with William Gaddis, for instance, who, by the way, was heavily in love with uh, Bernhardt towards the end of his life. He discovered him only late, late in life, and in fact, uh, Gap, uh, Gape, uh, uh, William Gaddis's last work, is is written in Bernhardt style. It's very—you know—it's got these uh, long uh, run-on sentences. Um, and in fact, he made a note in um, to somebody, he wrote a letter and he made a note to somebody saying, I have found my Cicero for all future engagements when he discovered Bernhardt. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, again, shows you that a genius like Gaddis uh, was also struck by the genius of Bernhardt and to the point where he was actually influenced by him. So that's, I, I can't even, I, I can't even, because I mean, for me, Gaddis is a genius of the first order and so is Bernhardt, but Bernhardt pulls Gaddis with him, you know. And of course, not the other way around because he was already dead. But even Gaddis was, I guess, what I'm trying to say, was susceptible to Bernhard's influence. Uh, and people like Jeff Dyer and a lot of other writers are have been totally sucked into uh, Bernhard's style and and just can't shake it loose and have to a- adapt it to themselves because, you know, it's such a powerful tool.
0: Um, well. What what I would uh, what I would love to know is um, how is Bernhard read in the German speaking world and, and we don't know that right now because it, it's you, he's been he's been dead now for about twenty five years so he's probably at that point where you you can get a bit obscure or you can also be you know elevated into the you yeah. know, uh, canonical status. So I, I, I wish that we, you know, we had a call-in show. Right. And well, his, his publisher <laughs> so, so is, is German.
1: His, remember, he in his will, he, he really, you know, said fuck you to Austria in the biggest way possible. In his will, he said uh, that his work should not be performed or published in Austria ever. Uh, now, his publisher made a few exceptions, minor exceptions, but for the majority, I mean, his major publishing house right now is in Germany. He's and he's very, very well known in Europe. He's very much admired in Europe much more than than here than in America, even though his reputation here has been rising steadily for the past fifteen years or so. I I tell you the funny thing is when I first discovered Bernhardt in like two thousand and one or two or something like that, uh I, I this is before the internet, so I I couldn't like you know, look things up and stuff like that. So I really I became very possessive of him. I was like, this is the guy I discovered. I, saw, I felt like I discovered him. You know, obviously not for the world, but for, for myself. And I, it didn't, I didn't see a lot of references to him in America. Again, this was pre-internet. But I guess from what I've been reading, uh, just in pr- preparation for this podcast, it's true. He wasn't very well known in America. Uh, even you know, Gaddis kind of discovered him accidentally. Um, but in Europe... Uh, in france in germany in spain in in Portugal he is extremely popular uh less so in Austria <laughs> but still very popular um, so his reputation is assured i mean there's no there's no there's no doubt that he will um you know this is a genius guy
0: yes, you know one of the things that also occurs to me as we think about Austria and Vienna is I can't help but wonder if part of the sense of deterioration and part of the because it's also a critique of, of intellectuals and, mm-hmm. and artistic people, and this is something that he runs throughout his books, is this has to be considered within the backdrop of Vienna, and I might get the time somewhat wrong, but perhaps between the two world wars. Vienna was um, an intellectual first-class city. You, this is where you had Jung, and this is where you had Freud. And you had Robert uh, Musil, who um, is 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 on my uh, reading list to finally get to um, the man without qualities. His books, yes, yeah. I, I I I continue to run across references to him by writers I love and respect. But I, I'm not going to get all the the names right. But there were many many intellectuals uh, in Vienna uh, between the wars. Uh, many of them Jewish. And many of whom had to, of course, flee um, as the Second World and War approached. Just to
1: get it, sorry to interrupt you, Rob, just to mention it before I forget Wertheimer is Jewish.
0: Uh, that's interesting. Yep. I, I didn't, is there an no, explicit yes, reference yes, to that? Yes, he's,
1: he's, the a, a reference. Uh, the, innkeeper, the innkeeper asks uh, the narrator you know, about uh, uh, Wertheimer's funeral, and he says, Was it a Jewish funeral? And then the, they mentioned the fact that they were Jews, and during the Nazi period they had to leave Austria to England for England, and then yes. come back yes um, but it's an interesting little little i't not exactly sure what that means, but it may be to represent the all the the Jewish intellectuals of Vienna, but Wertheimer is kind of the this almost a stereotypical uh you know neurotic Jewish intellectual um, he said, looking in the mirror. Um, Uh, you know but very viennese and also very very wealthy and wealth is a i mean we could just talk about this book for hours but wealth is very important um in this book because uh, all three characters here are are wealthy are sort of independently wealthy uh vertheimer more so than anybody else but um it it really um again had to flee austria um and come back, but the wealth almost destroys, really destroys Wertheimer as well. It's, it, at least it adds to his destruction because he was never comfortable with the wealth as opposed to the narrator who's comfortable with the wealth, with his wealth. Um, and I, I just found it really interesting that uh, Wertheimer is Jewish. I just, you know, I, I didn't notice it in my first reading. I only noticed on the, on the yes.
0: second. Yes. Because. Because there are um, there are references in the book to the Nazi past, and in fact the um, uh, the house yes. that um, <laughs> that Glenn Gould and the three uh, music students uh, are in was um, owned by, or maybe is no, 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 owned, owned by, it was a f-
1: owned by a quote unquote recently deceased Nazi sculptor who worked for the, at the service of Hitler, and all these yes. Nazi sculptures, these tremendous uh, ugly hideous uh, slabs of stone are all over this house that they rent in order to practice for the Horowitz course and Glenn Gould of course as soon as he hears that this was a Nazi home and these are Nazi sculptures bursts out laughing and this laughter is very important because it recurs throughout the book the narrator sort of recalls that laughter and he says at one point it's the most wild, the most uninhibited the, the, the most incredible laughter I've ever heard in my life it's this particular laughter of Glenn Gould laughing at these Nazi sculptures. Glenn Gould then goes on later on to get drunk in champagne, and and he just pushes around these, or at least you know, throws the bottle at some of these sculptures, and which they can't move because it's so heavy. Uh, you know, another yes, reference yes to, to, there's always a reference to Austria's Nazi past in Bernhardt.
0: Um, yes, and I and I think it's um, Austria has never been very good uh, as opposed to Germany at really acknowledging i think they've allowed to say well you know we were forced into to a a, a union with with hitler and and we were just you know innocent well, or whatever it just, but was the, it just recently
1: that they had that that uh, chancellor whatever his name is kurt something Waldheim or whatever who, i forget exactly who it was just absolutely like, that, recently, that was recently yeah, the guy was, had a nazi past and everything you know
0: and they elected him absolutely as their leader and 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 uh, there is absolutely no doubt you can watch the uh, the film. When Hitler enters uh, Vienna in 1938, uh, there was absolute passion and uh, great excitement for uh, for the Nazis. Yes. And, and I think that's a part of Austrian history that still is not dealt with. And, and he obviously plays and in, in kind of toys with that.
1: Well, I'll tell you, uh, Bernhardt's last book that he wrote before he died, um, Extinction, is... First of all, it's it's a, it's one of his I think uh, longest books, if not the longest, besides his autobiography, gathering evidence. But it really explicitly deals with the Austria's Nazi past. It's all over the book. Um, it's this thing that Austria just can't shed, and he really just he just pushes the reader's face right into that pile of manure, and you just can't breathe except that stench. However, the book is still amazing. I mean, it's just really. But again, just so dark and so. It takes a while to recuperate after reading Bernhardt. You know, it really does. I mean, like, I, as much as I loved rereading the, the Loser, I, I, I'm all in flux right now, you know, because, uh, largely because of this whole genius theme, I think, the genius and mediocrity. Uh, there's a wonderful scene which I believe <laughs> tactically takes place in Salzburg, which is kind of a funny coincidence. It's uh, from Amadeus, the movie Amadeus. Of course, Mozart, Mozartium, Salzburg, this is all the same territory here, physically, geographically, and, and mentally as well. But uh, you know, Salieri, uh, kind of this Wertheimer character where he, as soon as he heard Mozart, he realized he was nothing. He was mediocre. Um Yes. And the, and the last scene, right, as he's he's finished telling this tale to this priest, and it's just early morning, and he's in this madhouse, and he's, all these hideous creatures are around him, you know, uh, wonderful direction by um, um, the director who just recently died, unfortunately, Milos Forman. Uh, but as he's being wheeled, as Salieri is being wheeled um, back to his room from, you know, telling his tale to this priest, all these... Uh, Insane people are around them, just looking really ugly. And he, he goes, "I absolve y'all. Mediocrity is everywhere. I absolve you. I absolve you." And that scene really, really touched me because, you know, I, I, uh, I do believe I'm mediocre in that sense, and it's really hurt. It really hurts because I'm not a genius. You know, <laughs> I really want to be like Wertheimer. I want to be that genius. Not really. Yes. But, you know, no. It's that, it's that sense of like, I didn't make it. I'm not there. I'm not. Yeah. I'm not, I don't know what it's like on the other side of that border. I don't know what it's like to be Glenn Gould, you know?
0: No, it, it's it's and well it said, and, and there's a – it does. And there's a part of – all of us on some level want to be exceptional uh, in, in some way. And, and, in fact, like you said, it hurts. Here, Here's um, the narrator talking about, again, his grappling with, with Glenn Gould and, and genius. He says he says that, you know, on some level, Wertheimer hated Glenn Gould. And then he says um, – and i myself wasn't free of glenn hatred i thought i hated glenn every moment loved him at the same time with the utmost consistency for there's nothing more terrible than to see a person so magnificent that his magnificence destroys us and we must observe this process and put up with it and and so that's it there's 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 envy i mean which is a deep rooted <laughs> human human right. uh, characteristic
1: just just to kind of end this because I think we should end on a positive note, having dealt, dealt with you know suicide and all these uh, horrible things but <laughs> he, um, Bernhard also offers um, a way out he also offers a little straw of hope you can kind of grasp at the straw because um, he says what what Wertheimer's problem was is that he wanted to be somebody else he wanted to be Glenn yeah. Gould. um. Whereas – and this is this what, this is what you know, causes unhappiness. Whereas to be happy, all you have to do is just accept that you are a unique, uh, autonomous individual and accept that individuality. Um, and, that's, and that's kind of a way out of this dilemma of, oh, gosh, I'm not a genius and therefore I'm going to end my life. Um, <laughs> you know, by sort of embracing who we are totally – we have a way of at least living authentically. We, don't, we might still not be geniuses, but at least we can live an authentic life. Um,
0: che- you know? Cheers to yeah. that! I, maybe, maybe that's, that's our, brand, our huh? my, my my next essay is uh, Thomas Bernhard novels as you know proto early self help uh, oh books. Oh my
1: god, he's turning as <laughs> grave as we speak.
0: Exactly. Um, <laughs> Well, Roman, uh, it's, it's been fun as usual, and I'll remind readers that if you want to catch more of Roman Sivkin, you can check him out on Twitter, at ZenJu, and uh, I'm also on Twitter at Robert RobertFay1, and I'm also going to throw out a plug for myself. Um, this week, uh, I'll have a column out on Three Quarks Daily. It's called, yeah, it's called um, uh, Indifference. Uh, and The End of Literary Lives. So uh, please check that out. And again, uh, thanks for listening. Go read The Loser. And uh, Roman, thanks again. It's been fun.
1: Thanks, Rob. I'm looking forward to your column.
0: Okay, man. Thank Thank you. you. Bye-bye.